Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert. Welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we talk about God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. This is season one, episode 19 on spiritual sourdough. We're in John's Gospel, chapter six, starting with verse 22. We're going to go all the way to 71. Now, if you're on one of those low-carb diets like the keto, the Atkins, the paleo, the Mediterranean, the Cro-Magnon, kill it and eat it raw, or gluten-free diets, this episode might be hard for you because all I'm talking about is bread. I mean, just bread. Is there anything better than the aroma of fresh bread hot out of the oven? I mean, when you break open a warm loaf, the fragrance permeates your senses, your mouth waters, your taste buds go on high alert, your stomach starts to rumble. As you break off a piece, you feel the rough texture of the bread on your fingertips. Maybe you add some olive oil or a little warm butter. And with your first bite, the flavor just spreads through your mouth, goes over your tongue, into your stomach, begins to nourish you, begins to become part of you. Jesus said, this is what it's like for your soul when he is Lord of your life. John 6.35 is the key verse for this passage. I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never go hungry. I'm the bread of life. Now, when we go to a restaurant, we generally focus on the entree, and the basket of bread on the table is usually secondary. In Jesus' day, the bread was the most important part of the meal. Meat was rare. It was more of a side dish. But that 100% whole wheat grain bread was the major part of the meal. So when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, he's saying he's the most important part of life. He's the main course, and he makes this incredible promise. He says, the person who comes to me will never be hungry. The person who comes to me will find satisfaction, nourishment, sustenance. Their lives will be full and flourishing. Conversely, then, the one who doesn't come to Jesus will always be hungry, always dissatisfied, always spiritually undernourished and underfed. Their souls famished. What could it mean for us today if we look to Jesus as our bread of life. I'm going to read this whole section. It's long, a lot of good stuff in there, but I won't be able to deal with everything in it. It's just, it's just too long. But this is one of those passages where we need to hear the whole context so that we get it right. John 6:22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, Well, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Well, what will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him, who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they, shall, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing this, Many of disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. And yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
who, though one of the Twelve, was later to betray him. I am the bread of life. The Apostle John brilliantly organizes his gospel around seven I am statements made by Jesus. Each one is a powerful description of some way in which Jesus wants to interact with our lives. I am the bread of life is the first one. And John sets up this first I am declaration by devoting almost all of chapter six to the topic of bread. Now, we've already seen at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus performs one of the most amazing public miracles called the feeding of the 5,000. A huge crowd spontaneously gathered to hear Jesus preach. Nobody planned for it to happen. So there are no food trucks, no vendor carts, no porta potties. Just a big open field. And so Jesus has compassion on them, asks everyone to sit down in groups, and then a boy innocently offers Jesus the food in his lunchbox. And Jesus, as he does with all of us, he just takes the little that we have to offer and he multiplies it. He takes the boy's simple lunch, prays over it, multiplies it, and feeds them with what? Fish and bread. Barley loaves, to be exact. And when the meal was over, they gathered up 12 huge baskets filled with leftover scraps of bread for people to take home. So already bread is in the picture. Bread also appeared in a significant role earlier in Jesus' life during his temptation by Satan in the desert. Now, that's not recorded for us by John, but it's a good passage about bread to review, and you can find that back in Luke chapter 4. But here in John, following on the tale of this epic large crowd food event, Jesus saw something or people saw something powerful in Jesus, and so they wanted more of him. They followed Jesus all the way around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus knows what's in their hearts. They want another handout, another free meal. They think Jesus is setting up a food truck. They want Jesus to put on another show to make that bread thing his gimmick. You know, it's his shtick just to draw a crowd. And, you know, there are a lot of churches that are going that route today, you know, relying on gimmicks. Ministry becomes gimmicks to draw a crowd. The church's mission outreach just becomes a marketing tool. I mean, look what wonderful people we are. But Jesus doesn't play that game. And he says in verse 26, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me his seal of approval. In this little statement, Jesus kind of echoes the words of, the great, uh, of God given through the great prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 2. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Come to me that your soul might live. Wow. I mean, that's the same challenge that hits where we live today. What are we really working for? What do we really want out of life? What do... Uh, we, we use to fill this, this nagging hunger in our hearts. Why are our hearts so restless? So much of our lives seems focused on just making a living, on getting money and things and gadgets and bigger toys and just making a living when what we really need to do is to make a life. The Bible teaches it's okay to have material things if, and it's a big if, if we keep our, keep our things in proper perspective and balance, If we miss that, the primary focus of life has to be in God. 
We walk around like, like with an aching hollowness if we miss that, like your stomach is perpetually empty. One writer says it this way, with all our ingesting and cons- uh, consumption, our hearts are still many and our fulfillments are few. So what are we doing? Where are we heading? Unable to relax, unable to find satisfaction for more than just a few minutes at a time. Our restless hearts, constantly busy, constantly seeking something. Work hard, play hard, party hard, hoping to find something that will give us that peace we're looking for. And yet despite all we do, we continue to hunger. What are we looking for? What will make us happy? What will set our souls at rest? What is it that we want? Jesus talks about all our inner compulsions and desires by using the image of bread. I think what Jesus is saying is that when we give ourselves over to him on a daily basis, we will taste the difference in our lives. Our lives will have a different flavor. To have the bread of life that Jesus is talking about is to discover a daily relationship with God, a continuing connection with God that satisfies our inner hungers, that makes the connection that seems to be missing, that connects us with our creator and with our real purpose, enables us to find peace and wholeness. And I think this is what Jesus means by the bread of life. Jesus claims to be the source of inner satisfaction. But Jesus doesn't stop there. His intense words about the bread of life get even harder to swallow. You know, no pun intended. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give you for the life of the world. Now, this really is a startling statement. The people who were listening to him were so upset by these words that were told that a riot almost broke out. In verse 52, they began to argue sharply among themselves. And that's a really, really strong. They were shouting at each other. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They were stumped because it seems like Jesus is advocating some kind of kind of cannibalism. Now, looking back on it, we can see that Jesus here is prefiguring the Last Supper, but his disciples won't understand what he's saying until they gather in the upper room to celebrate the Passover with Jesus and then begin to see the connection between the bread as his body physically broken for them when he died on the cross and the wine poured out like the blood that will be shed for their sin. What is so important here is that Jesus was leading them to a moment of decision. A decision. He would no longer allow any of them to follow him just for the entertainment value of the free food. And this is an important point. Whenever a person encounters Jesus, there will come a time of disruption followed by a moment of decision. A time of disruption followed by a moment of decision. At some point, God shakes up our world and reveals a little bit more of himself to us, more than we can handle. And that forces us to make a decision. Do I go closer to him or do I walk away? Disruption. If you keep on reading down in verses 60 and following, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? See, Jesus's claims were too much for some of them. The issue here wasn't that they couldn't understand it. They understood They just didn't want to surrender to it. You know, sometimes we think people just need more information about Christ before they put their faith in him. But more often than not, it's not a matter of needing more data. It's an issue of lordship. In other words, the problem is not intellectual. It's volitional. It's in the will. It's human pride refusing to come under Christ's authority, refusing to come under Christ's control. 
I think what's really behind a lot of people that we hear about now, people who are reconstructing their faith, when they press the eject button from their faith, it's not just that they are rejecting the bad experiences or the shallow theology or the bad leadership that they once endorsed as Christians. They're also, in a sense, rejecting the lordship of Christ. It's an opportunity to throw off his yoke, even though Jesus tells us his yoke is easy. Must have been carrying perhaps the wrong yoke all along. But when push comes to shove, some people simply do not want to fully surrender their lives to Christ, even some of those who claim to be Christian. And it's interesting here that it says Jesus knew from the beginning who his true disciples were and who weren't. That there were some he knew from the beginning were not going to make the cut. They weren't going to be on the team. They were going to fade in the stretch. And Jesus knew that, and it's only the ones whom the Father draws. Again, the Father is always first, and he is drawing people unto himself. And that's the mystery somewhere in there of predestination and free will and all that kind of stuff. But somehow we're told that God is drawing people, and those are the people who will stick it out. What's striking here, though, is that Jesus does not adjust his teaching to make it more palatable more agreeable to the people who are walking away. He lets them go. He lets them go. He doesn't say, wait a minute, I was only kidding. I apologize if my rash words offended anyone. No, Jesus does not chase after them. In fact, he doubles down and challenges them even more when he sort of sarcastically asks in verse 61, does this offend you? Does this offend you? Well, tough toenails. I mean, John shows us that the real Jesus is not always to listen to, easy to listen to, or is he easy to follow? Essentially, Jesus is saying that if you are bothered by what the bread of life is asking you to do, that's good. If you you feel like I'm challenging the way you live, I am. If it seems like my teaching is hard to accept, it is. The question from Jesus now becomes, what are you going to do about me? And John shows us the two choices, desertion or declaration. Choice one is desertion. We can't help but feel a little sad at this point when we read verse 66 from this time. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. These were disciples, (laughs) people who had publicly identified themselves with Jesus, who turned out to be fair weather followers, who didn't get what they secretly wanted. And so they left. They bailed. They were the church shoppers, the casual spiritual consumers, those seeking a spiritual high without any commitment. They left because Jesus offered what they really needed, a new relationship with the Father, but they decided to bail instead of to believe. Does that happen today? You bet, all the time. All the time. And the mistake we often make in the church today is that we fret and stew and we worry about seeing them go because that pushes our numbers down. Pastors, I know that's true for us. We're always thinking about the numbers. and the churches, we feel the pressure to have those numbers, especially now during COVID. And we expend way too much energy trying, begging, wooing them to come back. You know, it rarely works. It rarely works. The casual spiritual consumers, they are not the same as true disciples. They can become disciples. That's the hope. That's the good news. They can become disciples, but sadly, many of them will always just kind of haunt the edges of the body of Christ, and they will never fully commit to the bread of life. Or choice two, declaration. As the crowd thins out, as people walk away, Jesus turns to the 12 disciples. In verse 67, he asks, 
Do you want to leave too? Talk about a line in the sand moment. Okay, time to pick a side. You're either in or you're out. It's like they say in Texas, there's nothing in the middle of the road but yellow stripes and dead armadillos. So pick a side. Peter speaks up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So you just got to love Peter's honesty. What he's saying is, Lord, you're not easy to live with. You embarrass us and at times you frighten us. We don't always understand you. And yet your words are the most remarkable words that we have ever heard. They explain who we are. Help us to understand life itself. We are held here by our desire for more of you. We have put our faith in you. Where else could we go? You are the bread of life. Jesus calls us to have our lives filled with him, the bread that satisfies. Jesus' presence is life-giving. He is your soul food, your constant source of daily spiritual nourishment. The life that Jesus promises is the gift of eternal life, plus a life where you can experience him now as internal peace, a sense of purpose, a source of living power. How do we do that? How does Jesus become the bread of your life? Well, I'm not a food channel kind of guy, but years ago I got a quick lesson in bread making. My extended family used to spend the week following Christmas together at a small cross-country ski lodge in New Hampshire called Moose Mountain Lodge. It was idyllic, everything you could imagine about a winter place in New Hampshire. Snow, the huge fireplace, an eagle in the sky, hiking, cross-country skiing, sledding, a little frozen pond where my son John first learned how to ice skate. But best of all, delicious home-cooked gourmet meals and the best sourdough bread I've ever had. I was hanging out in the kitchen talking with Kay, who owned the lodge, with her husband. She gave me this quick lesson on sourdough bread. She told me that sourdough bread requires a starter. The starter is an active, living yeast culture with the power to become bread. It's a living organism, and it only stays fresh if you regularly feed it with water and flour. If you don't feed it, it turns gray and goes bad. But if you feed it, the sourdough starter grows and grows and grows and soon becomes more than you can use. Unless you're baking sourdough bread 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at some point, you got to give some of that starter away. If you don't give it away, it gets too big and becomes useless. You got to give it away or throw it away. Kay told me that there were two simple principles of sourdough starter. You got to feed it and you got to give it away. Listen to that. You got to feed it and you got to give it away. I read an article about a guy in San Francisco with a 230-year-old sourdough starter. He actually has the pedigree written down of who started the starter and who it was passed on to until it finally reached him. Think of the history of that sourdough starter that it lived through, beginning in one of the East Coast colonies in the late 1700s. It fed pioneer families as they moved west to Ohio and Indiana. They went through the Civil War. The sourdough starter went with wagon trains across the Great Prairies and somehow ended up on the West Coast. Think of all the sacrifices and trials, the joys and hardships it witnessed. So this guy has this tremendous sense of responsibility with his sourdough starter. He received it. He's got to keep it alive. He's got to feed it, and he's got to give it away. As you think of Jesus as the bread of your life, I want you to see Jesus as the original spiritual sourdough starter, that we need to use the same two principles to keep our faith and relationship with him on the right track. So you got to feed it, and you got to give it away. Feed it, 
To me, that means asking, are you hungry for God? God, do you have an appetite for him? If Jesus is the true source of inner spiritual nourishment and satisfaction, if he is like the manna which fed the Israelites in the wilderness, then Jesus comes to meet your deepest needs. But do you have a hunger for him? That's the main thing we need to focus in on. Do you have a real hunger for Christ? Because if you do, you will feed your desire for him. You will find the time. You will give him the attention. You will make faith a priority in your week. You will make good choices with your schedule and with your focus. You know, what you feed grows. What you feed grows. That's just a basic reality of life. If you, if you feed anger, resentment, jealousy in your heart, if that's where you dwell and you're thinking, then that's what will grow. If you feed those negative emotions, negative attitudes, that's what's going to grow. If you feed on Christ, then his influence over your life will grow. Problem is, we let so many other things crowd into our hearts and mind and use up all the space. Listen, listen living a victorious Christian life requires some self-discipline. It requires self-discipline to set aside time for prayer, to grow your understanding of the Bible, to make worship a, a priority, to not cave into the pressure and status symbols of our culture, to be God's man or woman. That takes self-discipline. That's how you feed your faith in the bread of life. As John Piper puts it, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. Is your soul stuffed with small things? Do you eat on spiritual junk food, spiritual fast food that just doesn't nourish or satisfy? If you're full of what the world offers then there's no room for Christ to be your bread of life. You've got to feed your soul's appetite for God. I think this ties in with last week's podcast on the, on, on, uh, the miracle there. God wants to work in our hearts so that the living bread can emerge. How many times have you uh, finished watching a TV show or realized how long you've been jumping around on the internet and you say to yourself, that was just a waste of time. That was a waste of my life. There are so many soul wasters in our life, things that don't feed us at all, that don't feed our souls or our minds or our hearts or anything of value. How many more episodes of that TV show do you really need to watch? It's kind of a waste. Sometimes the reason we're not hungry for God is because we've already filled up our lives with the junk food of the world. We're bloated, friends. We are bloated with information. We've got way too much other junk going on in our heads all the distractions and time wasters of this world, and there are a million of them. It's like we need a soul cleanse so that we can feed our hunger for God. Spiritual hunger is often contagious. So get around other people who are hungry for God or people who are further on in their journey than you are. Get in a group. Be connected to some healthy Christian friends. Study the books. Study a book of the Bible. Listen to podcasts or other inspiring Christian leaders and Bible teachers. Find people who share and will encourage your hunger for Christ. Pray with them and pray for them. Ask them to pray for you. And pray to Jesus simply, Lord, help me to be hungry for you and for your word. You've got to feed that sourdough starter for the bread of life to be yours. And you've got to give it away. Jesus came to be that bread of life the world was starving for. He came to reconnect with people, uh, reconnect people with their God. Jesus made this essential, essential part of his message, John 10. I have other sheep 
that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. And they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And then he passed on that same sense of urgency to his disciples after the resurrection. Acts 1 verse 8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that spiritual sourdough starter has been passed down to us. We've got to feed it, but we've also got to give it away. Read any newspaper or online uh, news site. Listen to any broadcast. Just listen to the people around you throughout the day. What will that tell you about our world? That our world needs the bread of life. The mess in Ukraine, it's just the latest example. Our world is starving for God's grace, starving for God's peace. And that's why it's important to give away the bread of life. Here in America, we are slowly realizing that our main mission field is not overseas, but it's right here in our own backyard. A huge cultural shift has taken place in our generation. The church used to be the center of the culture. Uh, New England towns literally grew up around the church. The church was physically the center of the community and of social life and spiritually the center of how people lived. And that is no more, my friends. Not for a long time, you know it, and it's not coming back that way. We do not live in a Christian culture anymore. So we're going to have to become a lot more creative in how we pass on the bread of life. Same sourdough starter, but maybe in some new pans. Same essence of Christ, but maybe some different forms of expression, new shapes and styles. Same delicious flavor. We don't mess with the essence, but we make new expressions. We've got to give it away. So you need to be engaged with a local church in your area and prayerfully connect with people in creative and effective ways. Build bridges, build relationships, develop the posture of a servant. And as you feed your own faith, you give it away to others. That begins with your personal witness. That's the most effective way. Not everyone's called to be an evangelist, but we are all called to be witnesses. So go treat people the way Jesus would treat them. Pray for them. Let people know of the goodness you have experienced from Christ. Pray that God might give you the opportunity to lead, lead at least one person to faith in Christ in the next year. I mean, is that really too much to ask? That you might influence one person in the next year towards Christ? I mean, what if half the Christians in this country just took that simple challenge seriously to give away their faith to one person? What if we got serious about giving away the bread of life? And what if everyone took this challenge simple, simply? Each one, reach one. Each one, reach one. Simple, effective, right? Each one, reach one. Give it away. Can you imagine the exponential growth we would see if we took that seriously and we all started sharing the bread of life with others? Because all that means is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You got to feed your faith and you've got to give it away. Quite frankly, I must admit that as a church, I don't think we are living by the sourdough principles when it comes to the bread of life. I think we've got a long way to go. The sourdough starter has been passed on to us since the time of the disciples. It has been passed on to us, and it's our turn now. This is our generation. we got to feed it, and we got to give it away. If not, it turns gray and dies. Does that describe any churches that you know? Don't let that happen. Do not hoard the bread of life for yourself. you got to feed it, and you've got to. You've got to. you got to give it away. Pray for God to give you the opportunity this week. Take care.